as I indicated at the beginning, you know, time only allows us to really hit the mountain peaks, if you will, of the stories of some of these people, but I just thought it would be interesting for us to look at the life of David and kind of take a, a big view of it and not just look at him, but look at a lot of the people that he touched and people that touched him, uh, people whose lives crossed paths, some great examples, some not so great, uh, some examples of the characteristics that we all should be striving for and uh, others, of course, not. A uh, little quote, and there are a lot of quotes in your notes that I just uh, put in there and a lot of scriptures that uh, I've written down for you to look at. <clears throat> Here's a quote from Billy Graham that I think would be a good one for us to keep in mind through this weekend. Billy Graham said, when wealth is lost, nothing's lost. When health is lost, something's lost. When character is lost, all is lost. Just kind of let that engrave itself on your mind because ultimately, you know, we should be living our lives backward. And that's something I picked up from another guy whose name slips my mind at the moment, but he said we should be living our lives backward, meaning we should live every day as if we were looking back from the finish line. Would the choices that we make, the things that we do, the, the things that occupy our time, our effort, um, the, the things that we set our heart on, would they really be worthwhile when it's all said and done? And character is the one thing we'll never regret. To develop the character of the Lord Jesus Christ, to reflect it to the greatest degree that we can. None of us are going to attain a perfect record. But to reflect it, and, and as we'll see in David, you know, part of great character is the ability to bounce back from failure. Victors get up when they fall down. Victims stay down and make excuses. And so we'll see that in the life of David. We've got a lot of people to look at yet, and I would encourage you, maybe as you go wherever you're staying or to your home tonight, sit down and look through some of the examples that we have before us and just ask yourself, have I really been aiming at these characteristics as a goal in my life? Because we all should be. We're going to move into study number two and we're going to look at a contrast between David and Saul. And this contrast is the contrast of humility versus arrogance. You know, many of you have seen what I call the five stepping stones of life. And those five stepping stones begin with attitude. And based on attitude, which is going to be either humility or arrogance, we're going to establish the priorities of our life. And our priorities are going to reflect our attitude. If we have a humble attitude, we are going to develop spiritual priorities. To the contrary, if we have an arrogant attitude, we're going to establish priorities that are carnal. And we see that contrast in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 
And then from attitude and priority come decisions. And if we have a humble attitude and develop spiritual priorities, we're going to make wise decisions. And to the contrary, if we have an arrogant attitude and our priorities are carnal, we're going to make foolish decisions. And the scripture everywhere makes these contrasts. It's like there are two paths in life. It's not like all roads lead to Rome. It's not like we have a million different ways that we can go. We either go to the right or the left. We either go on the right path or the wrong path. And scripture constantly breaks down these contrasts that I'm trying to bring out to us in these classes. When we make wise decisions, it's going to produce right actions, good actions, holy actions, acceptable to God. But when our priorities are carnal, our decisions are going to be foolish, it's going to produce evil actions. And actions always have results. And therefore, if we have actions that are good and right, the results are going to be blessed. And to the contrary, if we have actions that are evil, the fruit that they're going to bear is obviously going to be very bitter fruit of condemnation and judgment. And so really what we're seeing in these contrasts are people who chose different paths in life. And we need to be making wise decisions, producing good actions, if we want to hope to get good results. You'll notice on page one, I had a little part that I wrote. You don't need to look at it right now, but for 40 or 50 years, the victim mentality has been produced and promoted in our country. Our schools have taught the victim mentality. Everyone should get a trophy. No one should be made to feel bad. Uh, if someone is lousy at school, uh, it's not their fault. It's the fact that they came from a bad neighborhood. They came from a bad home. They had a rough start in life, whatever it may be. And those ideas have basically permeated this country to the point where now we live in a generation where the basic mentality is no one should suffer the consequences of their decisions. No one should suffer the consequences. In other words, no one should reap what they sow. But you see, this is subjective thinking. This is thinking through the lens of emotion. And it's not how God works. Sooner or later, reality is going to catch up with you. And sooner or later, reality is going to bring precisely the result of our attitude, priorities, decisions, actions, and the results are going to be blessing or condemnation. So here we have humility and arrogance. Proverbs 3.34 says, Surely he scorns the scornful, but he gives grace to the humble. Right now, the character of God demands, based on your attitude and my attitude, the character of God demands that we either receive grace or judgment. Based on what? Based on our attitude. Whether we are truly living with a humble attitude, and a humble attitude is not walking around, beating yourself over the head, telling people, oh, you know, I'm just nothing. No, it's your standing before God. It is your reverence for Him. 
It is how high you hold him, how small you see yourself in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he gives grace to the humble, but he scorns the scornful. James 4, 6, and 10, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Notice the beginning, a humble attitude. Notice the consequences as you work your way through. Attitude, priority, decision, action ends up with what? He will lift you up at the right time. It's a guarantee. It's a promise from God. Doesn't mean he's going to make you rich. Doesn't mean he's going to make you popular. Doesn't mean that he's going to give you... God is not Santa Claus. He's not making a list and checking it twice. He's not seeing if you've been a good or a bad little boy. What he's doing is, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at what? He looks at the heart. And he's constantly evaluating our heart. Let's open to Psalm 25. I want to pray before we get into the study. All of this has just been preamble. We don't don't stray from the course. We just take rabbit trails. Like one pastor said, it's all right to take a rabbit trail as long as you kill the rabbit. So before we get into Psalm 25, if you would just join me before the throne of God's grace and let's prepare ourselves to hear what the Spirit of God has to say. Our Father, as we stand before you this evening, as we see these convicting words that come from the Scriptures, which are right and true, accurate, faithful. Father, if there's any of us here that think we have attained to humility, we just lost it. Humility is one of those things that the minute you know you got it, you lost it. But Father, for us, as David said, to have a heart that is panting in pursuit of what it means to be humble before you, and in that humility to live lives of meekness. Meekness isn't weakness. Meekness is the expression of surrender and submission to you. And because of that, a restraint and a consideration and a compassion of those we come into contact with. And the times that we can come down in judgment or the times that we can wield the rod to realize that we also fail, to realize how much we need your mercy and therefore to deal with others in restraint and in compassion. Again, just following the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, who described his own heart as meek and lowly. So, Father, as you speak to us tonight, I do pray that God the Holy Spirit once again would open your word and break for us the bread of life and nourish our souls. We pray that you will cause your mighty angels to stand guard around this auditorium. Let no distraction or disturbance of the enemy come into this place that would hinder our ability to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Let him be honored and glorified and magnified forever. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I haven't planned on doing this, but I want to read the whole psalm because, as I said earlier, these are things that David thought often about. As a matter of fact, a little book I would highly recommend. I like to recommend reading material. 
The Life of David as Reflected in His Psalms. It's an old book. Alexander McLaren, I think he was back in the 17, 1800s. I can't remember how far back it was. But he does a really wonderful job of just going through the Psalms and showing us the heart of David. What was it that made him the man that he was? What was it that motivated him and moved him and, and set before him as his goal? So the life of David, um, I'll leave this out here on the pulpit if you want to look at it. Um, it's, it's an old book that's been uh, reprinted, but very worthwhile, and I do believe it could change your life. So here's Psalm 25. And it's a plea for deliverance and forgiveness, a psalm of David. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. You know, you could ponder that statement for a long time. In about 15, 16 days, I have a conference in Idaho. And they heard that I had done a conference in Arkansas on meditation. How many of you have ever heard a Bible class on meditation? Those of you that came to Arkansas. <laughs> it's not even taught anymore. We don't even know how to meditate. And so I was asked to do a conference on meditation and we delved into it a little bit. Well, the folks up in Idaho heard that I had done that and asked me to teach a little more on meditation. And you know, meditation, the whole idea of meditation is like the idea of a cow chewing on its cud. It's like you take in a certain amount of information, like the cow eats a bunch of grass, and then you bring up little bits of it, and you mull it over. You chew on it. You think about it. You pray about it. And then after you pray, you listen. One of the great failures in our prayer lives is we tell God what we want, tell Him what we hope will happen, ask Him for whatever it is, guidance, wisdom, direction, comfort, and then up we go and off we go into the world and we never stop to listen. When you pray, I would encourage you, spend a little time after you have closed the prayer to sit and wait. If you read the story of Samuel, you have the notes there in front of you and the references of his early life. When God called him, he didn't even know who was calling. Samuel, Samuel, he ran to Eli the priest. He thought Eli was calling him. Eli said, I haven't called you. He goes back to bed. Samuel, Samuel. By the way, according to Hebrew language and tradition, when you repeat someone's name, you're actually giving them a very prominent place. When God said to Abraham, 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 he was saying, in essence, you are very important to me. I have a plan for your life. I really want you to get this. And so a third time, the call comes, Samuel, Samuel. And he runs to Eli, and Eli says, it's the Lord talking to you. The problem with too many of us is we don't know his voice. We don't know how to listen for it. We don't know how to be attentive to that still small voice that doesn't speak out here, but it speaks in here. And if we learn to pause, if we learn to take a little bit of time, I think you might be surprised how it would affect your prayer life. So to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. If you're going to give an offering to God, what's the best thing you can give him? Your soul. 
You know why? That's what's most precious to him. You know, when Jesus Christ went to the cross and died for the souls of men and paid the penalty for our sins, I believe, and it may just be my perception of how it went, but Isaiah tells us that our sins pierced him through. Paul tells us that he despised the shame, which tells me that not only did he pay the penalty due for my sin, but he felt the shame and the disgrace of that sin before the throne of God. And therefore, it seems logical to me that as he hung on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins, he had us personally in mind. He had a plan for our life. He had a purpose for putting us on the face of this earth, for bringing us into the world at this time. And therefore, our soul was precious in his sight. He bought it at a great price. And therefore, David lifts up his soul to the Lord as we should as well. Oh my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. There's that idea of despising the shame. Let not my enemies triumph over me. David was surrounded by enemies in his entire life. He was a man of war. As we'll see as we go on, we're going to deal with the contrast of courage versus cowardice. You know, it's very easy, as I said earlier, to talk a great fight. It's very easy to say what we'll do if such and such a situation happens. It's very easy for us to develop a public persona of, you know, the guy that would deal with everything just the way it ought to be. But then when the test comes, many are like Saul. Tall, head and shoulders above anyone in the country. A man more handsome than all of his countrymen. And yet a man, when the test came, was unable to stand up to the test. And here comes little David. By the timing of God, by the order of his father, I gotta stop because I'm teaching tomorrow's class. <laughs> he says, show me your ways, O Lord, teach me your paths. Could I just teach you something that can change your life? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. That's subjectivity. We'll get to it in our last class. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. Do you know that as I've traveled around the world for all these years and I've been involved in the ministry since the early 1970s, do you know the one question I've been asked that perplexes people more than anything else? How can I know God's will? How can I know his guidance? How can I be guided by God? And you know what I like to tell people? It's the simplest thing in the world. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. I raised my hand in Bible class one time. Some of you here know John Miller. And John Miller was teaching back in the day when he would just let you shoot your hand up if you had a question, which, by the way, I like to do. If you have a question, I don't mind you shooting your hand up. We do it all the time overseas. I shot my hand up, and he had just made a point. And I said, Pastor, 
It seems to me, that was the first thing that came out of my mouth, it seems to me, he kind of looked at me, and I said, you know what? It doesn't really matter how it seems to me. And he said to the group, now there's growth. That's spiritual growth. It seems to me is not the issue. Question is, how is it to God? Trust in the Lord. Are you carrying a burden? Are you wounded tonight? Are you seeking direction? Trust in the Lord with three quarters of your heart and he will direct your path, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on it seems to me and he will direct your path. It's as sure as the sun coming up tomorrow. So to continue, I have only so much time and I'm almost frittering it away. Verse four, show me your ways, O Lord, teach me your paths, lead me in your truth, teach me. The Hebrew is lamdeni. You read through Psalm 119, you'll see it over and over and over again. Teach me, teach me, teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait once in a while. You know, when David said this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he was speaking absolute truth. When David was seeking divine guidance, everything else went by the wayside. All other duties, responsibilities, concerns went by the wayside, and he waited on God. We give God 15 minutes and wonder why he hasn't answered. And that's part of meditation. You need to find a place to meditate. You need to find a time to meditate. You need to find a method of meditation and you need to pursue it every day. Take time to know God. Take time to listen to God. Verse six, remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindness. We'll be into loving kindness and loyalty tomorrow. For they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me. For your goodness sake, O Lord. You know, it's very interesting. We come to Christ through grace and we live the Christian life through mercy. You ever think of that? For by grace you are saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. And grace is God giving us everything that we don't deserve. And mercy is God withholding from us everything that we do deserve. Marvelous two sides of the spiritual coin. Verse eight, good and upright is the Lord, therefore he teaches sinners in the way. And here's our topic, verse nine. The humble he guides in justice and the humble he teaches his way. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 in a nutshell. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth. Wouldn't you like to follow a path that is all mercy and truth? He says, to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies for your namesake, O Lord. Why? Because 
we are either bringing honor or dishonor to him. Pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him he will teach in the way he chooses. Once again, the idea of humility. He himself shall dwell in prosperity. His descendants shall inherit the earth. By the way, we just read of Samuel's two sons, and one of them was named Joel. And you say, well, it doesn't seem like this promise is fulfilled, but later on we're going to find out that Joel's son became the leader of the Levitical choir. Isn't it wonderful how God continues his faithfulness down through the years? Verse 14, the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him. He will show them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. Turn yourself to me and have mercy on me, for I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have been enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Look on my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. Consider my enemies, for they are many. They hate me with cruel hatred. I tried to describe to you what we were going through in Australia. There was so much demonic, satanic involvement. If I tried to describe it to you, you wouldn't believe it. Now, I used to work with the sheriff's office in Faulkner County. And while I was in Faulkner County, I became a local expert, they said, in satanic cults because nobody else would delve into it and they were very active, and we had Satanists that infiltrated our church. And so I began educating myself, and I be began getting able to spot the evidence of cult activity in your area. And I ended up giving seminars, police officers and first responders, fire people and everything else. But I was called to Searcy, because of a uh, crime that had been committed down there, and they showed me a bunch of stuff that had come out of the room where the crime had been committed, and they said, is there satanic involvement here? And I looked at it, and I said, absolutely. I didn't even have to look it over. When we came under demonic attack in Australia, guess what association I found? People that were associated to people in Searcy. Arkansas. How amazing is that? I'm halfway around the world and what I was trying to do in Arkansas has now followed me and I suppose they figured it was time to finish me off. They came really close. They really did. Not because of any attack. They broke my heart. They brought me to a point where I gave up. I was ready to throw in the towel. I told Nan, it's not worth it. Let's just quit. Let's just go do something, raise chickens or sheep or horses or something. And thank God, a fellow believer chewed me out and told me how arrogant and self-centered I was and basically gave me a really good slapping across the face and to the point where I was laughing. And I said, you know, you're absolutely right. I'm being completely self-centered in this whole thing, and it all turned around. They hate me with cruel hatred. By the way, they may strike again. 
Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God. Isn't it amazing? He goes through all of his troubles and then his conclusion is for the nation. I hope you're praying for our nation. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all their troubles. Well, if you'll turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 9, we're just again going to hit a few high points. Let's look at Saul and let's see what kind of a guy he was. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, when Samuel <coughs> talks about Saul, at the end of verse 20, he says, Is the desire of Israel not on you and your father's house? Right there at the end of verse 20. And Saul answered and said, Am I not a Benjamite? By the way, the Benjamites were not real popular. But they were great at using a sling. Am I not a Benjamite, the smallest of the tribes of Israel? And my family is the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin. If a man of God came to you and said, God has a special purpose for your life and the desire of the nation is upon you. I could just see us now. All right. I'm your man. I'll do the job. And I show you this because I want you to understand that Saul started out right. But history is littered and the path of life is littered with people that started well and fell by the wayside. And that's exactly what happened to him. Turn to chapter 10. When Saul is being proclaimed king. Verse 19, Samuel says, You have today rejected your God who himself saved you from all your adversaries and tribulations. And you have said to him, no, let us have a king. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. And Samuel caused all the tribes of Israel to come near. The tribe of Benjamin was chosen. They were choosing by lots which one God had chosen. It was the tribe of Benjamin. Verse 21, when he had caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of Matri was chosen. And Saul, the son of Kish, was chosen. But when they sought him, they could not, he could not be found. Therefore they inquired of the Lord, Has the man come here yet? And the Lord answered, There he is hiding among the baggage. Humility. You know who makes a good pastor? The guy that flees from it. I've had opportunity to play a part in training many, many pastors. And I can tell you all through the years, the guys that are chomping at the bed, I want to be a preacher, I want to be a preacher. I'm always very leery of. The guys that say, not me, no, not me. As C.S. Lewis said, God drug him kicking and screaming into the kingdom. Why? Because they recognize the awesome responsibility of that position. And it's fearful. And it's something that should terrify any man stepping into the place. This place, with this book open before us, this is holy ground. And when you touch that which is holy, Saul's going to do it 
doesn't end up well for you. Doesn't end up well at all. There he is hiding among the equipment. And then if you'll turn with me over to 1 Samuel chapter 13, we see the beginning of the fall. Samuel told Saul to meet him at Gilgal and wait till he arrived and Samuel, who was a priest, would offer the sacrifice. Saul gets there, he waits the appointed time. Samuel's not there yet. And so here's what happened. Let's just start in verse six. When the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, the Philistines, by the way, are gathering up there in verse five. The people of Israel are frightened. The people were distressed. The people even hid in caves and thickets and rocks and holes and pits. Remember in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 38, it talks about those who lived in holes and pits uh, and, and caves and so on and so forth. Verse 7, some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. They're terrified. He waited seven days, verse 8, according to the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me, and he offered the burnt offering. And here's the point. When you touch what's holy and you're not supposed to touch it, you're under the judgment of God. You know what that includes? That includes marriage. That includes family. That includes Christian associations. That includes prayer. These are holy things. And when we presumptuously assume the responsibility of touching that which we're not supposed to touch, it doesn't end well. It's not going to end well for soul. Now it happened. By the way, get this in your mind because this is a common phrase in the Old Testament. It just so happened always means according to the plan of God. In God's will and timing, it just so happened. That as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him, that he might greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? I wonder if the Spirit of God has ever convicted you at a point in your life and said, what have you done? I know the sound of that question. What have you done? It can never be undone. Once it's done, it's done. It's a part of history. It's a part of your life. We read the record of these people. We read Hebrews chapter 11. We read about the greats and we love their stories. But did you ever stop and think yours is being written right now? One day, the record of your life and my life is going to be kept before the throne of God. As we're told in the book of Revelation, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar. When I was a new believer, I thought that meant you were going to stand like a pillar in the temple of God for eternity, and I thought, I don't want that. 
but no, in the ancient world, when they came back from the wars, the heroes that had led the battles, the guys that had distinguished themselves on the battlefield, they would raise a pillar, and inscribed on the pillar would be the deeds that they had accomplished. Wouldn't you like to have more than a sentence in the story that God's going to tell? What have you done? Saul said, when I saw the people scattering from me and you did not come within the days appointed and the Philistines were gathering, do you see what's going on here? Objectivity, right and wrong, reality, truth, goes out the window. And all of a sudden, this guy who started out the desire of the nation, chosen by Samuel at the command of God, anointed, proclaimed, and then actually commemorated as king. And here he is. What's his response? Look at what's happening. But he sees what's happening through the lens of me. That's called subjectivity. And it destroys many a life. Samuel said to Saul, you have, not, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God. See, that's objectivity. God said this. That's it. No argument. No debate. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which He commanded you. For now, listen to this, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. You say, well, how would that be possible? Since in Genesis chapter 49, the prophecy was that the scepter would never depart from Judah. You do know that later, the kingdom divided. And it would have been very simple for God to have established the throne of Saul and still had David come along. The option was available. God would have established your kingdom forever, but now your kingdom will not continue for the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart and the Lord has commanded him to be the commander over his own people. Well, Samuel wasn't done making a mess of things. Turn to 1 Samuel 15. And here we have Samuel commanding, and you can read the chapter, but Samuel commands Saul to attack the Amalekites. The ladies in our church have been studying Esther, and we see the historical consequences of Saul failing to fulfill the command to attack the Amalekites and kill them all. I want you to get something in your mind and you know maybe it will shake your perception of life. Some people need to be killed. Some people need to be killed and I hate to say it, a lot of them are in this country. There are people whose hearts are so hardened, whose acts are so vile. I told you that I've delved into a little of what goes on. I was teaching in Pennsylvania, and I said, as I've said for probably 10 years now, the abortion industry is a child sacrifice cult. 
They believe that the sacrifice of every child is an offering to Lucifer. I've known that for years. And every time I've said it, people, you know, they get all upset. And here's the interesting thing. A guy walked up to me, had tattoos all over himself from the church there in Pennsylvania. He said, I came out of Satanism. I came to Christ. And I was deep into Satanism. And he said, you just revealed something that 99% of the people in this country not only don't know, they don't want to hear about it. It is a child sacrifice cult. Why would people who have no interest in it, they, they don't have, they're not pregnant, why would they be so, we've got to, I just saw a sign up in uh, Jerome. Keep abortion legal. Big, big letters. Why would people who have nothing to do with the issue be so committed? Because it is Luciferian. People don't want to hear that. By the way, to back up what I'm saying from the opposite side, did you know that the Church of Satan has now filed lawsuits in several states? And the reason they file lawsuits is they say taking away abortion is keeping them from one of their rituals. If you don't believe me, believe them. They have filed lawsuit to keep abortion legal. That's how much they believe in it. Well, Samuel fails to attack the Amalekites or Saul, excuse me, fails to attack the Amalekites. When Samuel comes in verse 17, he says to Saul, when you were little in your own eyes, we call that humility, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel? Did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, which you, uh, and why did you uh, swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? You ready for Saul's answer? Subjectivity. Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I went on the mission which the Lord sent me, and I brought back Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people looked on the pl- took of the plunder sheep and oxen, the best of the things that should have been utterly destroyed. To- we only took it because we were going to sacrifice it to God. We really, truly intended to offer it to the Lord. Do you know if God says to destroy something in your life and you try to dedicate it to Him, do you realize that you're doing exactly what Saul did? He says, get it out of your life and you say, oh God, I'll dedicate it to you. He doesn't want it. It's already under his condemnation and judgment. Verse 22, Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offering and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Listen carefully. To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed than the fat of rams, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. By the way, what finally cost Saul his life? We're going to see it. It's coming up. The sin of witchcraft. 
Do you know when that final drama of his life had the seed planted that led to it? Right here. He was already involved in witchcraft. The word witchcraft, by the way, is a word that refers to divination, which means seeking answers from another god. And so God clearly tells us in his word what to do, and we say, now Lord, did you really mean it that way? Well, I have another translation here, and it puts it different, and I like that. You know, like some of these guys that preach, and they preach from 26 different versions, because if the one that their reading doesn't say it the way they want it, they can find one that completely changes it. Rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft and stubbornness as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. Saul is on his way to judgment. And when David was anointed, it tells us that the Spirit of God, you can see it there at the bottom of page 6, it's in 1 Samuel 16, the Spirit of God departed from Saul and he became oppressed by an evil spirit. And then we have David. If you just look on page 7 of your notes, David, the man after God's heart. David's humility was demonstrated by his occupation. He was a shepherd. Do you know that shepherds were the most scorned and despised people in the land? Do you know why the angel bringing the, bearings, bearing the tidings of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ went not to the temple, not to the priests, not to the Pharisees. Who did he go to? He went to the shepherds. Because they were the most scorned, but they were also the most humble. There are a lot of other things that could be brought out from that. We haven't time to go into it. But David's occupation was that of a shepherd. You can see that in chapter 16, verses 1 to 13, when Samuel goes to the house of Jesse to anoint one of his sons king, uh, as king. He lines up seven of them, and they were tall, good-looking, broad-shouldered, tight, six-pack stomachs, and he lined them up. And Samuel came to the oldest and said, oh, this has got to be him. God said, no, not even close. Went to the second, the third, all the way down through them all, and he says, God hasn't chosen any of them. By the way, Jesse was commanded to bring how many of his sons? All of them. Isn't it interesting how we play games with God? Is seven out of eight close enough? No, because the one you leave out will be the one God wants, right? And so they send to the field, David comes in, ruddy, Fair complexion, probably redhead, freckle face, sunburned, stripling, wiry, little short guy. God says, this is my man. Remember, God says to Samuel, when I told you I would choose a man after my heart. Probably at that time, David was... 15 years old, maybe not even that much. But he had already been living out the character and the quality that God wanted to find in him. You know how we know that? Read Psalm 23. 
Psalm 23, though it may have been written later in years in his life, he was recapturing the heart and the attitude that he had as he cared for his father's sheep. David's simple faith was indicated both by the commendation of him by the Lord in chapter 13 and verse 14, but by the faith he expressed in the 23rd Psalm. And so David comes forward and his devotion to God is seen in chapter 18. If you'll just turn there with me, 1 Samuel 18. What a contrast to Saul. You remember this is after the David and Goliath incident and we'll get to that tomorrow but after his victory the women were singing as they danced in verse 7 and they said Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands then Saul was very angry the saying displeased him and he said they have ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they've ascribed only only thousands what more can he have but the kingdom but you know what Saul would have known he would have already known that Samuel had anointed David. He would have known. You don't have a prophet show up of Samuel's caliber and do what he did and have three of David's brothers in the army of Saul and nobody knows it. That was the beginning of his envy. And verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him. Let me ask you a question. Is there someone that you see the Spirit of God working in in their life and their ministry and it bothers you? Is there someone that maybe gets a little bit more recognition for their spirituality and it bothers you? Because that's an evil thing. When the Bible says rejoice with those that rejoice and weep with those that weep, what it's really telling us is set yourself aside. Focus on others. What does Paul tell us? Let each consider others as almost as good as himself. Remember that verse? (laughs) Consider others as better than yourself. And you know what that means, the ones that irritate you? That means the ones that have ways of doing things or saying things that grate on your nerves, like chalk screeching across a chalkboard. Catch yourself, my friends, and go before God and say, Father, my attitude to this person is not right. And I want you to cleanse me of it because this is destructive to my life. Let me promote them and hide myself. Verse 14, David behaved wisely in all his ways and the Lord was with him. Why did Saul fear him? Why did he hate him? The Lord was with him. Why did David act wisely? The Lord was with him. Verse 15, therefore, when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. You know, godliness is a fearful thing to the ungodly. You ever think about that? If you're living in close fellowship to God, people are going to fear you. They may act like 
it doesn't bother them. They may put you down. That's an evidence that it does bother them. They may scoff at you, mock you. All the more evidence. Something in your life is troubling to them. All Israel, verse 16, and Judah loved David. Why? Because he went out and came in before them. He was victorious in everything he did. I want to close with the humility of our Lord and Savior. To me, one of the greatest passages in all of Scripture. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30, come to me. I mean, just stop and think about that. Why in the world would he want me to come to him? Why would I matter enough to him? Why would you matter enough to him that he would want you to come to him? That's a great question. And subjectivity would say, I must have something he needs. And objectivity would say, he wants me to come to him because he has what I need. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I take that to be the rest of salvation. It's a free gift. Come to me, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you. Now we're talking about something different. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest. The old Puritans used to call this the second rest. What were they talking about? They were talking about the fact that, as Paul says in Romans chapter 5, having therefore been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have rest in our soul. And that's great. That's wonderful. But there's more. As if grace wasn't enough, salvation wasn't enough, the assurance of eternity wasn't enough. The love and mercy that God lavishes on us as if that's not enough. And the fact that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and we could go on and on and on of all the things we have in Christ. He says, there's more. Take my yoke. You know how to train a young animal that doesn't know how to pull a plow? You yoke them with one that knows how. Yoke a young, untrained animal with an old, wise animal, he'll learn to pull that plow. And so Jesus, the perfect yoke mate, asked us to take his yoke on us. Hello, hello. I'm almost done. You're just going to have to listen to me as I am. Just as I... No. Here's the yoke. Shall I start singing now? <laughs> Just as I am without one plate. <clears throat> when we take the yoke of Christ on us, we find rest. Am I coming through? Yeah you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke 
is heavy and burdensome. Is that what your Bible says? My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And could I just tell you, as someone who's been a believer since 1965, that's a long ways back and some of you weren't even a twinkle in your daddy's eye. The hardest path I've ever walked is when I chose a path different than to carry the yoke. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. You know why? Because he's doing the heavy lifting. He's the one who is bearing the brunt of the burden. And there is rest to be had in the worst of circumstances when we go through them with him. Let's pray that we all do that. I hope you all have a good evening. Again, thank you for coming out. I am always amazed that anyone would show up to listen to me, but I'm glad somebody does. I've always got my wife. If no one else comes, she'll come. Thank you all. Rest well. Let's pray and go home. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love and mercy. Father, each and every soul gathered in this building tonight is so precious in your sight. If any one of us was the only one on this earth to be saved, Christ would have still gone to the cross because he loves each and every one of us as if we were the only one. We can't even fathom such love. But Father, we can learn of it. We can grow in our understanding and we can even have the Spirit of God reproduce that love in us for other people who are equally difficult or challenging or hard to understand or whatever the case may be. So send us on our way tonight rejoicing for the grace that you have given us and challenged to put these things into practice in our own lives so that we may be a blessing to others. To this end, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.